Welcome to American Girlies, the podcast where Canadian historians read the American girl novels. I'm Hannah Spawalser Soroka. I'm Margot Mathieu. And I'm Sonia Ann. And today we're reading Kirsten Saves the Day by Janet Beeler Shaw, which was published in 1987. Um, we're going to start with a quick summary and some historical context before discussing what we just read. And boy, was it something. <laughs> this was an oof. So Just far, they've son. all been oofs, but this was the oof of all oofs. Yeah, so far, I really thought that we couldn't get any more boring. And yet, and yet, here we are. But there's yeah, the most the, life-threatening events in this one. This is the thing. This is the dichotomy of the Kirsten books, is everything happens. And also, and it, simultaneously, it's the most boring thing I've ever read in my life. So content warning for harm to animals and problematic depictions of bears. Um, so the gist of this one is that Kirsten is going out fishing with her brother. Her brother wants to bring their puppy. Uh, they go out into the woods. And while they're out in the woods, the puppy gets stung by a bee. Kirsten's like, that must mean there's bees around, obviously. And she goes to look for the bees and... They find all the bees living in a tree, and she's like, there must be so much honey in there. I'm going to personally, by myself, as a 10-year-old, go and get all of this honey so that my family will be proud of me, um, because there is some questionable family dynamics here. So she tries to sneak away multiple times. There's constant warnings about don't go into the woods by yourself because of bears. Um, so eventually, she convinces her little brother who she went fishing with to come with her they bring the dog along and while they're out at the bee tree there are bears who also want the honey they get chased up a tree the dog gets swiped by the bear papa larson ends up finding them because of the injury to the dog uh, kirsten is sad because she didn't bring the honey back for everyone and also almost killed herself and her brother and then they take the beehive and they bring it back to their house and they sell all the honey at the 4th of July parade thing and she gets a new hat. I'm not sure at what part she saves the day other than maybe helping them with capitalist ventures. Uh, it mostly sounds like she didn't save the day at all. So <laughs> she, she endangered the day. Oh, Kirsten. But how about some historical context, Marco? Because yeah. what, what was historical about this book that we should discuss? Yeah, so this one was a little difficult to really find like a theme to talk about. Um, so we're just going to do some brief context on ideas about the wilderness, because there's a lot of talk about being afraid of bears, which is obviously a thing like you should be afraid of encountering like bears out in the wild they are scary but generally in our zeitgeist now when we think about bears we think about them as like big and kind of goofy 
uh, and less sort of this like threatening presence that lives in the woods and might like kill everyone, uh, which is how they kind of existed before the turn of the 20th century. And like the basic gist here is that people especially in like a European context, have always been very afraid of the wilderness, of the woods, of landscapes that aren't completely controlled and modified by humanity. And it's mostly that like they're afraid of what might be in the woods that can hurt them, right? Bears, other people, things unseen. Uh, one of the things that I did want to point out was in the period of like early colonization of North America, a lot of people really, truly firmly believed that they had driven the actual physical embodiment of the devil from Europe by converting everyone to some form of Christianity, and the devil now lived physically in North America. Um, so like if you read any sort of Puritan tales about what's going on in the woods, they're very afraid of like demonic spirits being there because the actual literal devil was there. They're also just like deeply unsure of what indigenous people are doing in the woods. Like early colonial people don't view indigenous people as maintaining the landscape in any way, that they're like part of this sort of wild landscape. That's where the term like the the noble savage really comes from. Um, it's not savage in the terms of like how we would think about the term savage now, um, like violent or angry or like anything how like Miss Winston uses it in these books. Exactly. It would have been like and that like Kirsten's period is in that turning point because of the wars on the plains but in the early colonial period um, it would have been much closer to the term like in French sauvage where it just means like wild or uncultivated yes Um, this is the shift that's really happening in the period that Kirsten's living through um, with the advent of like the railroads and towns moving all the way out to the west coast most of the land is becoming cultivated or toward the turn of the 20th century it's becoming parkland there's this weird movement of nature writing that's where we get like figures like John Muir and uh, Whitman all of those guys writing about like the majesty of nature and things like that but it's a conquered wilderness Um, and that's sort of where this shift in the idea like the vision of the bear comes in and there's this story about how teddy bears become this thing to give to children in this period when Teddy Roosevelt as president goes on a hunting trip to Mississippi and they catch a bear and tie it up to a tree and he's supposed to shoot it and he feels like the bear is too pathetic to be shot and it's the first time that really like humans are thinking of bears as something that they could easily conquer like that and a cartoon is drawn up about it and this guy um, makes a little toy bear and calls it Teddy's bear side note Theodore Roosevelt really hated being called Teddy so that's a hilarious little thing that's happened now he's exclusively known as teddy that's how it goes sometimes and just to sort of like throw this in here from an indigenous perspective this was not like wild land right it's not something separate from people and for a little bit more context uh none of this land wasn't cultivated in some way like everywhere that humans have lived humans have been managing and changing the landscape 
So there's like been slash and burn land management across North America since people have been living there. The creation of the plains in some ways, keeping the forest and wildness at bay, keeping those glacial prairies was really managed by centuries of indigenous work. Um, when Europeans first showed up on the coast of North America. They were like, wow, these forests are like so wide and open. You can just ride your horse right through the forest. And that's not like the natural state of North American forests, uh, as evidenced by the fact that Quebec is on fire. Most of the country's on fire. But like Quebec's not supposed it's to be on fire, everywhere. right? But like, so they had like these uh, yeah. controlled burns that got rid of undergrowth and made it so that deer could more easily move through the forest so that they, they were managing both the plants and how wildlife moved through, how their sources of food were moving through. And animals do this too, which is an example of what's happening with these bears here. They are like managing how where bees go bears are influenced salmon runs bears influence all sorts of things like humans are not unique in managing the spaces around them and indigenous people know this that's just sort of a, another perspective about what's going on and sort of like where kirsten's family is falling in this story here Um, Kirsten behaves like an absolute dumbass. <laughs> Which also, as we've discussed, this it just it implies that there were no woodlands in Sweden. This like, is what I'm Kirsten at. has never seen a woodland before. Okay, sorry, Hannah, you go. No, forward. no, but you're absolutely right. It implies that Sweden is a bear-free utopia where not only are there no bears, but there's also no other things in the woods that could become problematic for you. Yeah. And we know no that's not uncultivated true. uncultivated space. That's just wildly untrue. Uh, and my favorite piece of evidence for how freaked out Europe was by bears is that the word bear itself is a taboo word. Yes, exactly. And what I mean by this is the word bear... In English. in Yeah, in English and Germanic languages is a word that was invented so that it could be used instead of the actual word for bear because people were so afraid of even saying the name of bears they thought like they thought saying the name of a bear would summon that bear yes yeah, so you'd have to call and the it, whole like, hemisphere is called arctic the place yeah. where there's bears <laughs> So like they're just so obsessed and afraid of bears and this is sort of the thing that i well, want yeah, to get like, at this shift that's happening where like I guess maybe this does sort of reflect that throughout the end of the 19th century, people become less afraid of the wilderness as like guns and weaponry and control of the environment become something that they're like more capable of managing. But at the same time, like Kirsten would be growing up in the context of Swedish like fairy stories and you know, this cultural context of Sweden where there is a deep fear of going into the woods alone. Of That's where all of these stories about, like, the old ones and people disappearing and stuff. Sorry, I am also from Appalachia. Like, you don't go out into the woods alone because you fall into a hole and you die and nobody ever finds your body. You get attacked by a cougar. People, yeah. These children, she would have grown up with every story that she's being told is about the horrors of what happens in the woods by yourself. That is the culture that is like being brought 
across the West. Anyway, Kirsten is yeah. A I mean, like, can we? Professional. Well, and this is this is what gets me is that she finds this tree, and then when they're picking berries later, she encounters a bear cub, and suddenly her cousins have to like explain to her that. Uh, no, seeing a bear cub is not cute and fun. That means Mama Bear is nearby and we need to get out of here. And she's like, but it's it's just a little guy. It's He's just a, a little baby. friend. Yeah, and she's like, I guess I have to listen to her because she's 13. Like, Jesus Which, Christ, Kirsten. can I say, though, <laughs> that is the most 10-year-old <laughs> reasoning. Like, oh, well, I guess you're technically... You know, she's a teenager, so she knows but things. Yeah, I guess. it is incredibly. Kirsten is is incredibly irresponsible in the woods, and this whole story feels incredibly moralizing again about obeying your parents. Because, like, if Kirsten had just yeah. told her parents, they would have been like, "What a terrific and clever thing to do! Let's go get that honey," and she would have been the hero. But like, she has this incredibly strong need to do everything for her family by herself. Like sometimes she'll rope in her cousins. Sometimes this time she's roped in poor little Peter, who's yeah. like five or six years old and is being asked to smoke out a beehive, and then just barely escapes being eaten by a bear. Yeah. I mean, she just really manages it poorly. She's got this weird mix of being totally devoted to her family and doting, and also constantly wanting to one up them. That I think is is a really interesting I'm- character choice. I'm. I think that it like is a deeply disturbing reflection of the parenting that's on display here. Papa Larson is like again because, the like, worst dad in the. Somehow this man is on a three book run of being the worst parent in the world. Well, and he's like not supportive of his wife. Like on multiple occasions, he's like, "Well, Mama's just supposed to be worried about you doing anything," and also like apparently doesn't praise his children in any way which i think is part of why kirsten feels like she can't just come and be like i found this thing and then we're going to work together to like do this yeah stuff. yeah he's but like but like she she has to go and like do everything herself she can't just come back and be like i found this thing she has to financially save so like the thing that i'm getting from this is that not only are they like not praising their children, but they're burdening them with the like worries of the entire adult family with like, well, you can't have material goods because we can't afford anything and everything is bad and awful. And we're we saw this in the last death. one where Kirsten had to miss school to, to make baby clothes, right? Like this child yeah, is completely exactly. burdened with the adult world. And because she's still a child, she puts herself just, and her brother and their dog in unnecessary risk. I just want to make sure that we get in there, because I don't know if we've mentioned it yet, that the whole reason that she's so gung-ho about getting the honey out of the tree is that she wants to be able to sell it, because she knows that the family doesn't have the money right now yeah. to buy like a new saw blade and fabric for clothes, and also her older brother Lars doesn't, doesn't have, have anymore. Shoes. Which, okay... I, I, so I just wanted to make sure that we have that. But also, can we pour one out for the 15-year-old brother who is, according to this book, working with all the grown men without boots. So he's barefoot doing all of the, like, farm... Manual labor on the work. farm. 
Right. And then in the last chapter, it broke my little heart when he's he's apparently made these little like wood carvings. And when he goes to sell them, the shopkeeper's like, oh, yeah, people in town really like those. They're so nice. And the book says that his cheeks turn red because, quote, he wasn't used to being praised. And I'm like, oh, Lars Larson. You poor yeah, child. Yeah, this awful parenting of the Larson family of like, I mean, and of course, a lot of this agricultural labor is just like rife with you stepping on something sharp and getting an infection and dying in days. Yeah. Right. There's there's so many reasons yeah. why the shoeless child shouldn't be doing manual he labor. Have shoes. So I think this is a good transition because I just want to talk about something about how this book exists in the time period, like in the late 80s, because there is, I think, something really, really disturbing about not just like that. This story is called Kirsten Saves the Day and she spends like. I don't know it's like what a 70 page book with like 10 words per page and she spends 60 of those endangering the lives of others but like the, the specific way in which she saves the day is at the beginning of the book or somewhere in the book it's they start talking about this 4th of July like festival that happens in the town and that at that festival everybody brings a bunch of stuff to sell to either the guy who runs the general store or to whoever like shows up and that they need this money they need something to sell so that they can buy all of this stuff like shoes for Lars and Kirsten really wants a hat so she she endangers everyone and then in these like last five pages everybody's like oh my gosh this honey is so great we're able to buy all of these things that we needed that saves yeah they go but also just like other things like they're able to then like also buy like other sort of just like material goods like she's able to get a a hat and her little brother's able to get like this knife so that he can start whittling too and like they're able to sell all of this stuff and then it's like that's why Kirsten is so great like everyone should love Kirsten because she's doing awesome and it's I find it disturbing that the message that we're getting here is it's okay to like disobey everybody and endanger the lives of everyone if at the end you're able to buy stuff yeah and it's that, like, interesting saving the day is setting it up so that you can buy stuff not just the stuff that you needed which like hey that's great that you have all of that stuff that you needed but also to buy yeah. extra stuff that like she saves the day because they're able to buy just like other things saving the day means well and they go shit. from taking all their stuff to town and the guy's like well i do like the carvings but everyone's made jam this year i'm not really interested in buying very much jam i'm not really like this is not going to be i'm not going to offer very high prices for this stuff and they're all like oh no uh, now we don't have enough money to buy the boots and the cloth and then the guy's like wait what's this honey and he just opens his coffers and now it's like more cloth and a hat for Kirsten. Um, and of course she gets a hat because we need something for the girlies to buy for their dolls, right? Like she gets a new hat because the old got it. We've already sold a million of those. You know, in the last book, she got a new apron and new ribbons. And the book before that was Christmas. So she had a special Christmas getup. Like she's always getting... Even though the family is always on the brink of financial ruin and there's never quite enough to go around, there's always just enough for Kirsten to have 
a new little treat for us to all a buy new the thing. Can I say though, I do think that this is interesting, right, in the context of like eighties toy culture, right? Where there were a lot of um like TV shows, right? You had like He-Man, She-Ra, Transformers, where it's like the whole point and purpose of these TV shows was so that you could sell dolls slash action figures slash whatever. And it, in a way, these books do kind of function within that same sphere, right? Of like, we are producing this so that you will not just buy the toy initially, but you're going to keep buying the accessories and like the clothes and the little things that go with it. Because when you read the books, you now want the doll to match with the books in the same way that with a lot of these TV shows, right? Like they would introduce new characters or new outfits so that it would encourage kids to bug their parents and say, well, I need, I need the new transformer. I need the new whatever action figure. So it's, it it makes sense in the way that it's. And the pinnacle of success was purchasing stuff. Yeah. And like that's the situation. You no longer make things, you no longer like, you know, just spend time with people, you purchase things. That's, well, it's, it's like this and is the also peak of mall this might be a, a thing like, for us maybe me and margo to talk about in one of our break times plug the patreon uh but <laughs> the experience of getting that american girl catalog in the mail and oh it was like God. 40 pages of loot <laughs> that i wanted all of it made out of polyester and other flammable mm-hmm. fabrics none of which my parents wanted to buy for me yeah. like we can talk about the intense yeah capitalist yearning of the american girl catalog oh god it was so awful if you look at our um like social medias and stuff you can see like my actual dolls and the fact that most of the stuff i have there is like handmade by relatives and not actually from the american girl catalog which means that i did not appreciate it at all (laughs) all i wanted was the shit from the american girl catalog and especially all of the tiny food stuffs oh man i went crazy for those tiny foods. so these are books that are part of a vertical integration model where it's telling parents we're teaching your kid about history we're good we're benevolent we are an educational tool please spend and it's telling kids don't you want the new straw hat for your Kirsten doll? Um, and and so we can talk about this when we rate the book, but it felt really heavy-handed here that this is an enterprise that is about buying and having and uh, enjoying the proceeds of somebody's labor. Uh, and yeah, I don't know if that's going to lead us into talking about the peak into the past which was an absolute ride and a half. Holy mackerel. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I, I really, I do want to transition to the peak into the past because that was my main, I mean, it's because the story was boring and dumb and mostly just about behaving poorly uh, and being unsafe. The peak into the past, though, spent a lot of time talking about sort of general ideas of life on the frontier. And while not, technically false in the things that can be fully verified in terms of like yes people were living in these certain areas and yes there was a lot of uncultivated land and things like that the qualitative assessments that were made in the peak into the past are 
Absolutely Can I read you the bonkers. first words I saw on the peek into the past page, which are under, <laughs> this is a caption for an image of a log cabin on an autumnal hillside with a covered wagon and a chopping block. And there's a mummy and a baby standing in the doorway of the log cabin and two little children on a dirt path outside of it who are all celebrating because here come two men and it looks like they shot at least one deer and some birds uh, and they have their hunting dogs with them. And there's this glorious autumnal reunion and there's smoke coming out of the chimney. (laughs) So this is the image and the caption to the image is frontier families worked hard to tame the wilderness Full stop. The whole thing is like that. Oh my gosh, it's insane. And there's another line in there somewhere that I found super disturbing where they were like that the wilderness, like there were dangers in the wilderness, but they were foraging and doing all of the stuff, which like, yes, great people foraged for food. Like that's a that's a great way to get food. And it was totally a thing that people did. And people did go into the woods, find bees, bring bees back, put them in hives, or you set up hives and bees just come. There's like a weird thing with bees. But the like, the thing, the statement that they make about that is that <laughs> is that it's a place where they're getting food, but they're also afraid of it and they're stressed out by it because it reminds them of all of the land they still have to like clear and cultivate. And I'm like, what a bonkers take. Because one, like, cultivating that land removes the ability to forage any of those things from it, number one. Number two, like, wow, you're just fully leaning into the, like, we need to claim all of this space. We need to take this from these indigenous people. We need to, like, destroy the the natural world that we live on and with like let's just take that turn it all into monoculture farmland and it straight up says that the fourth of july is a great opportunity for people to get together and not just celebrate and not just sell things but see how much progress they had made in clearing the land so they could start building towns it's colonialist garbage and then there's the second layer of it, which is just like child labor is good. <laughs> Clear the land, ideally through the labor of your children. Well, that and just from like an ecological standpoint, I really can't wait until to reconcile this book with the Kit Kittredge ones where they're living through the fucking anyway, dust bowl. Sonia, you looked like you like, wanted to say something for a minute and a half. And we've just been yelling about colonialism and tree stumps. No, I was just going to say, I think there is an uh, an interesting little bit there because uh, taking it back to the ending of the actual story not quite peek into the past Mm -hmm. when they're in town the general store manager right when he buys the beeswax is like quote some fine ladies who have time to polish their furniture are moving here (laughs) because the town's getting bigger and they're moving on up but it's also like okay you realize that people aren't polishing furniture because it's like fancy and frivolous and fun it's because if you don't then your wooden furniture will crack and crumble and break like yeah polishing it with like nice pure beeswax is perhaps a bit more luxurious than some of the like other types of oils you could use but it's it's just sort of like it's woven into that story in that way and then yeah, I, I appreciate the line on page 63 in my version 
But pioneers wanted to do more than take what nature provided. They wanted to control the wilderness because they knew that living on its edge was dangerous. And it just, I, I agree that it feels, it feels yucky. It feels like this should be, I, I don't love that there's no pushback within yeah. the peak into the past or within the narrative. There's no indication that, hey, maybe clear cutting areas and not leaving any ecological diversity is a bad thing, actually. The other thing, just to go back to the furniture thing in that end of the story, because they do go then in and completely like misinterpret a whole bunch of stuff about material culture in this period as well. And they do this whole thing about the sun hats, right? Because Kirsten gets a sun hat and they talk about how like they had to cover their faces from the sun because it was unladylike to have a tan. It's like, okay, I get that you're writing this in the middle of the eighties when like the spray tan fad and Baywatch was like the peak of high culture or whatever. But that's not why, I mean, it's, there is a culture of like wanting to be fair to show that you are wealthy and all of these sort of things. But the main reason that you're wearing a sun hat is because getting sunburns are dangerous. That's a dangerous thing. It is a burn. It can make you sick. Like, what? (laughs) Also, like, sunglasses aren't really a thing. Like, they exist, but it's not... It's really a see, common thing. So you want to see things. It's to protect your skin from being burned. It's to keep you because if you get a sunburn, you can get a fever. You can yep. get very, very sick from sunburns. So they like, can get no, infected. Not, they, like the whole thing is ridiculous. Yeah, it's just like a complete misinterpretation of material culture. It's a complete misinterpretation of thoughts about the wilderness, and it's a it's feeding into this weird like mythos that 20th century Americans have and I think that current like conservative Americans have about the foundation of the like country as it exists now like the coast to coast idea of America that is just it's ahistorical it's deeply troubling and it's aggressively violent and this is pitching it as just like isn't it great to purchase things isn't it just like a wonderful feeling to buy stuff aren't you glad that you now have like polyester tracksuits to go to the mall in the 1980s makes me want to die (laughs) section is so invested in making it seem like the past was an awful place and yeah there are many reasons why i would not choose minnesota territory in 1854 as my home uh But the problem of misogyny wasn't that they made the girls wear big skirts. The problem of misogyny is an institutional thing that existed in the 1980s as well. Yeah, and also, as a side note to that, can we talk about how at the end, the women and men, like the whole families, they show up to go and do all their bartering with the general store owner. And And the whole time, it's anti-Inger who is doing the negotiating, who's like, our cheese is the best, our hens are the fattest, look at this honey, it's amazing. And then, after she's done all the work of bartering with this guy, suddenly it's like, oh, the men will settle up the accounts, you women go look at your silly fabric. Quote, unquote, why don't you women go look at your pretty calicos, the men will settle the accounts. And this drove me crazy, because it's this idea that Again, women were 
doing what Aunt Inger was doing. This was something that women were going to market. They were buying and selling and trading and bargaining for their families. And they they get so close to showing that, but then they got to swoop in with the Let's let's sprinkle in some more misogyny just just for fun. But also, here's the thing about calico. Mm-hmm. Calico is cotton, mm-hmm. which is a delightful, breathable fabric yes. for the summertime months. Calico itself is also a deeply colonial product, originally from India. There were like furious freakouts in other colonial areas when they couldn't get enough calico. That was a major part of the rise of like piracy in and around New England was that they needed to get their hands on that calico. By this point, probably the cotton is not coming all the way from India and the like, yeah. it's all being done in what is present day United yeah. States. But they're actually there to buy practical fabrics that they're going to wear all summer long that just happen to come in patterns that they like. And that too is a colonial commodity but it's not the silly frippery that these stupid men who let their unshod sons go into the field. <laughs> well, so and I want to point out that is. at the point of the the point in time when this is actually written, women in America could have their own credit cards for less than a decade. Yep. <laughs> yes, in the 1980s. Yes. yes. So, well, I think they're just hitting just hitting the decade mark because I think that that. The, the law that allows women to have their own um, bank accounts and credit cards was 77. Um, so they're like right hitting the 10 years of a married woman being able to have a credit card in her own name. Um, and so like telling this story about like, oh, well, we have to make it sound like the past was so much worse and so much further behind uh, where we're at now. And what does but- that say when you're desperately trying to get girls to look at your catalog and buy your products including a lot of clothing for those girls like all of it polyester but all the there were like replica outfits that you could buy to match your doll and you're saying that femininity is silly and looking at fabric is silly and wanting to have nice clothes is silly but also at the same time you're like come here girlies and buy a frilly nightgown made of synthetic fabrics that will make you sweat so just a note it was it's just over a decade because it was 1974 when the law was passed yeah all right but like still still. still, that is a that is a marked step backward from colonial women who were like especially at the the early revolutionary period right so like uh or the early republic when women are the ones who are managing their households women are the ones educating the children women like men are going off to have careers and do politics and whatever but like there is a whole idea of like what a republican womanhood is and it is managing farms and and not just domestic society but like that the household accounts and all of those sort of things yeah it's this huge endeavor and and then we have this slow creeping backwards towards like women don't even know how to count it's like what are you talking about well and Um, i think that there is the whole thing right with the industrial revolution where we've talked about this in previous uh baba yaga project episodes right where when the when the domestic household right moves away from being a center of production to being a yeah. center of consumption that's when you actually see this big shift right from 
women are producing things in the home. They are buying and selling and trading things. Often it was women who would have had the cash in hand because she was the one who was selling eggs or beer or whatever at the market. And then we see women more and more pushed to the sidelines economically as it becomes more and more of a consumer society. And I think that it is an interesting case study of how progress isn't this like beautiful linear upward path of everything in the past was always worse always and things just progressively get better and better and that's just not the case it's a lot of a lot of ups and downs yeah and well and i mean so like sort of across time periods increases in the like general standard of living living usually correlates with a decrease in rights for women Um, and like, but that's one of the things where I find these books really frustrating because it, it feels like it's supposed to be this thing that is teaching girls about what girlhood and womanhood was like in the past, who they can look to, to model like future girlhood and womanhood. And what they're doing is just like, I mean, you read these books and it's like Mary Wollstonecraft never existed it's like abigail adams who is writing to her husband during the like colonial conventions being like hey um your the documents that you're writing just say like that every man should have these rights um and you know that if you don't say that women are included in this if you don't specifically outline it future generations are going to say that i'm not a citizen and like a lot of the stuff that ends up being in these founding documents for america come from wives of our quote founding fathers right so much of the things directly from abigail adams letters end up almost word for word in these founding documents and it's like we're just gonna pretend that she didn't exist we're gonna pretend that mary wollstonecraft didn't exist we're going to pretend that her daughter right mary shelley never existed we're not it's just but also it's i keep thinking like is kirsten actually a role model like who is this for who's gonna try and be like because kirsten is a wildly variable character depending on the needs of the plot. She can be sweet and helpful and giving. She can be rude and stubborn. She can be demanding. She can be impulsive. And all of these are normal parts of girlhood. But there's no through line of like, Kirsten is motivated by X, except she's motivated by the constant obligation to look after her family and provide for them. Provide for them and in terms of like capitalist lucre. yeah and so i don't exactly like this is what i keep coming back to in my ratings which have been pretty low like who is this girl and how is she moving in the world and what even is her character type like sometimes she's bossy and independent and like yeah go for it kirsten and sometimes she's a weenie and sometimes she's both in the same book about this same thing yeah i don't know yeah i mean i think this is a perfect time to like come back around to that like now that we're talking about like what is this saying american girls should be um which i think is just that they should be able to buy stuff which is deeply troubling to me but um in that sort of vein um out of uh five baby bears um, how many? What are, what are we rating this book? I think I'm giving it two baby bears. Wow! Out of a possible five, 
Uh, one baby bear for actual baby bear and one baby bear for mama bear. The only good characters that's, in this book. My, <laughs> this is my rating. I should say maybe an honorary. Maybe it's a 2.5. I'm giving half a baby bear for the dog who did nothing wrong. So it's the two dog and a half who did nothing wrong and five. got attacked by a bear for it. And still loves the stupid kids who got the dog injured. I don't know what gender the dog has. I don't know if the dog experiences gender, but all justice for Caro the dog. That poor dog did nothing wrong and they just let it get attacked by a bear. Oh Sonia? I think I'm gonna I'm gonna have to give it I guess, I guess two, two baby bears out of a possible five. They get one baby bear because at, at least it's acknowledged within the story. Like, hey, kids, going out into the woods by yourself, not the brightest idea. Maybe don't do that. So I think that's at least somewhat educational. And number two, I guess there's like some passing historical stuff that you could get out of there. Like, the whole idea that honey is super valuable at this time, which, you know, maybe kids don't know that historically. Maybe yeah. they don't know historical uses for beeswax. I'm going to I'm going to give it two, two bears. Margo, I think I'm going to I think I'm going to have to do one like I would do two, but they lose one baby bear for everything, every single <laughs> word that is mentioned in the peak into the past. And That's also fair. just like justice for our founding mothers. Like, let's. Like, oh gosh, pour one out for all of the his actual historical women whose entire lives are just undermined by every story about Kirsten. Also, <laughs> the moral of the story is that Abigail Adams deserves a nice straw hat. I'm sure that we're going to be talking way more about them when we get to Felicity, but like, come on, guys. This oh, is just a terrible me. representation of womanhood in this period. This one was okay. Even though it was, it was, it was somehow it, both the, very the nice action for the least. I'm yeah. still deeply upset, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't the peak into the past. It's still was the worst. just somehow very boring, oh despite having such high stakes. Yeah. Anyway, join us uh, next week when we read when Sonia Ann bravely leads us through the final Kirsten book that we will cover this season changes for kirsten we will finally be through with the kirsten books <laughs> and yeah we hope to see you yeah, soon we'll see you next week see ya bye american girlies is a production of the bobby yaga project we are produced and edited by sam Lee freeman we are hosted by sonia ann Margot matthew and hannah sparwasser soroka our music is composed and performed by esther ruth teal this podcast is brought to you by Patreon supporters just like you. If you would like to support the show, please check out patreon.com forward slash Project for bonus content and extra goodies. We are at Project on Twitter and the, at the Project on TikTok and Instagram.